This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 97. I'm super jazzed for this one, guys. I got to hang out with Lizzie from the Workspace for Children. She has a master's in education, and we dove into how do you foster independent play in these tiny humans. She and I got nerdy, and I probably could have gone on for a very long time. I thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with her. And she went to Bank Street, which is an amazing program. And guys, I'm just so jazzed to share this with you. I hear all the time from you guys, what do I do when I need to get stuff done and my kid's throwing a tantrum or they will not leave me alone and I need a minute to myself? How do we do this? What do we? How do we navigate this? And part of that is also, how do we help kids get creative and dive into projects where they aren't just looking for approval or to hear good job on something, where they can really be creating something for themselves and that they're really proud of. Maybe they're still excited to share it with you, but as a part of their process. Lizzie's absolutely amazing. She has a fantastic uh, social media presence and blog, and I love this episode so much. I'm so jazzed. I'm sharing this with you on Thanksgiving because Lizzie has created an amazing gift guide. And so if you are going to hit up some shopping and you're wondering what to get kiddos this year, she has a fantastic gift guide to work from that include materials and products that are sustainable and that aren't just going to last for like the baby stage, but can really transform into toddlerhood or beyond uh, so that it's something you can continue to use that can continue to grow with you and your family and your kiddos. All right, guys, without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell.
Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. We have had so many requests to talk about independent play. I think it's a hot topic. We're all like, how do we get these kids to stop interrupting what we are trying to do as adults consistently, making dinner, trying to get out the door, et cetera, and, and invite them to play independently. And it can be a hard thing to learn how to foster. So I'm super jazzed to have Lizzie from the Workspace for Children joining us today. Welcome, Lizzie. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. And that is one of my favorite topics is teaching people um, how to foster that because I do think it's a skill. And I think a lot of people sometimes feel like inadequate because they're like, but my kids don't just play. They want me to play with them or they want me to turn on the TV. And I, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, thinking our kids are supposed to just magically do that. And in our world that we live in today, that's actually not what happens. It's a skill that you can teach um, and I really think you can teach it at any age. Um, I don't think it's something that like, oh, you missed the window too late. So yeah, so it's a favorite skill. It's just my favorite topic. I love it so much. It's so in alignment. We say it's never too early and it's never too late to start this work. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up so that if folks are tuning in and they're like, yikes, they're eight. Um, what do I do now? I think we can dive into different ages and stages and how to foster this mm -hmm. um, throughout time. Can you share with folks a little bit about your background and kind of what brings you here? Sure. Um, so I have a master's in early childhood from the Bank Street School in New York City. Um, and I did my undergrad actually um, in elementary ed. So I've been in the field for a while. Um, when I had my oldest, who's 12, um, I stopped teaching to stay home with my own kids. And I have a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, and when my six-year-old, I think, was about one, I started to really itch to, like, get back in the field in some capacity. And so I actually, a lot of people don't know this, but the Workspace for Children started as an actual studio in my home um, where I would have little classes for parents and caregivers and young children. And we would just kind of talk about play and process art. And I would put out like really simple invitations to play um, because there wasn't really, that wasn't available where we lived um, at the time. That's awesome. That's how the workspace started. That's so cool. I didn't know that history. Also for those tuning in who don't know Bank Street, Bank Street is an amazing early childhood program. That's phenomenal. I didn't know that that's where you went. So cool. Oh yeah. Oh, it was so impactful. It's an amazing place. And even, you know, for people who are in the fields or even not, they offer these like ongoing education classes that are like a weekend or something like that. And I just encourage everyone to take a peek over there because it's really awesome. That's so cool. Um, also made me think it, as people are tuning into this and, and hearing you share about your journey and, and ways that we can bring kids into this. If they then choose to go follow you on Instagram, which I also highly recommend, one thing to note that you just brought up, you have been creating this for 12 years, from the toys that are in your house to the materials that are accessible to you, et cetera. So when people are starting out, if I found myself, I went to your Instagram and at first I was like, whoa, she has all these things. And then as I started to dive deeper, it was like, oh, she's been building this for 12 years. Yes. Um, so I'd like to, as we navigate this, also discuss how do we start and where does this look, what does this look like? I really would also, because I think it can be, especially now in the age of Instagram and Pinterest, I think a lot of people like look into like Playroom inspo or whatever. And it's like these really expensive toys and like these beautiful setups. And to be honest, a lot of the time I wonder if children even really play in those spaces. Mm. Um, and I think when the, when you don't acquire things over a long period of time, um, 
I think kids would take like little loose parts and just dump them out and walk away. And that would be very normal. Um, so I think a lot of people look at my children playing and be like, oh, but my kids don't do that. But it's because this kind of play is developed over time and they've been practicing it their entire lives. Um, and that's not to say you can't start where you are. Um, that's the beauty of open-ended play and open-ended materials is that they can meet the child where they are in their development, in their stage of development and what they need in that moment. Um, so you can start anywhere. I love that. So what does it look like? We, we've used the phrase invitation to play a few times. Will you break that down and explain like, how do you create an invitation to play? Sure. Um, I think invitation to play has really become a buzzword, which is exciting and amazing. Um, but I think a lot of people are actually doing it on their own without knowing that they should call it that. And an invitation to play can be something as simple as a clean playroom <laughs> that's not cluttered. Um, and it can be as developed as a beautiful Play-Doh project put out with, you know, different materials and scissors and, you know, things for children to work with to come in and be invited to create. Um, to me, a really valuable invitation to play isn't necessarily the most beautiful thing. I don't think it needs to look Instagram worthy. I think it needs to be simple and available. And I also think that I see a lot of people who like go nuts trying to like develop these beautiful invitations to play. Um, and then their kids don't play with it and they're annoyed and they don't do it again. So I think if you are someone, and I just encourage you to just search invitation to play on Pinterest or um, Instagram to really see more of what I'm talking about. But there is, I think a lot of pressure on t even teachers now mm -hmm. with like Pinterest and um, to develop these beautiful invitations, if you will. And then kids like people are frustrated when their kids only sit for a few minutes at it. Um, and the thing is when you're developing an invitation to play, young children are not supposed to sit for a long time. It's not how they work. Um, and so I really encourage people to set up an invitation to play. That's easy for you using materials you already have using natural materials that are free. Like you don't need to be running to the craft store. You don't need to be ordering all these special things online. It's really just about like finding a pattern of setting it out and then letting your children really decide if they want to use it right now, or maybe they're going to play something else and come back in and work with it. Often I put out just markers and a big piece of paper, and that's an invitation to create. It's simple. It takes me no time. And you know what? The kids might come home from school and not feel like doing it. But then when I'm making dinner later, all of a sudden I have three kids like talking about their day, working together on this like big mural. Um, and maybe it's not even to get touched until the morning when there's like the school rush and my little one is being ignored. And suddenly I look over and she's like paint, like drawing this amazing picture. So I just think simplicity and habit um, in creating invitations to play are key. I love that so much. And simplicity really for us. Yes. Uh, so key. <laughs> it should not be hard on parents or teachers. And, and also I just think I was just actually speaking with a group of teachers in a workshop recently. And I was saying to them, pick a few basic materials and use them again. And again, you do not have to reinvent the wheel. That's the beauty of it is that like our children are going to develop. And if your material that you're using like water or clay or dough is as open-ended as it is, it's going to reinvent itself depending on what stage or what your child is working through or what they're interested in. You don't have to do that. 
your child's development does that for you. So it's really just about like creating the habit of creating or creating the habit of playing. Eventually your children, they know inherently what to do. It's just, you really have to like carve the time and space. And other than that, like they'll, they know what to do. Yeah. Oh, I love it so much. I think we as adults can get bored where we're like, there's no way they're going to want to build another block structure. <laughs> and they do because we have so much more lived experience and we have different, we're coming to the table with different perceptions. Mm -hmm. And as adults have really been conditioned not to play in, in a lot of ways at this mm -hmm. point. Yeah. I think that that's key. I found it as a teacher too. And as a toddler teacher, it was really infuriating when you would like really go out of your way and you're like, they're going to love this. And I, I put so much time and effort into it. And then either they don't touch it or they dump it on the ground or they use it in a way that I didn't intend mm -hmm. or imagine. And then I have to deal with the emotional regulation of like, either they don't value that I put so much time into this. They don't. Um, nor, and nor should they. <laughs> right, exactly. Or, we forget or, right, or they're not using it the way that I intended. And I think that when we're talking about independent play, a huge part of this is the adult role in their independent play. Like what is our role in fostering this and as I said like if I set something up and I'm like oh this is how I intend for them to use it right what happens when they're not using it that way mm -hmm. so I think there's a I mean obviously there's a lot to this and I actually have written an entire ebook on this and, and it's short it's a it's a guide to quiet time and independent play um, where can people access that that is on my website okay um, workspaceforchildren.com great we'll link it in the blog post for this yeah too. um and I've had so much great feedback from that because it really just breaks down like the steps. Uh, like if you're practicing with a baby or a toddler or a grade schooler or like, and how that looks. Um, but to go back, I just, so it takes practice. I mean, I think that's the only thing I can really say to you is like, we have to think about like our role and our mindset and our, and where our child is in their stage of development. Yeah. And I want to kind of dive in a little bit to the idea of process versus product. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, I would love to. So I am passionate about process art and process art means that there is no outcome that is expected. It's not a project. And sometimes we do a project for a reason and that's different. Um, and there are skills involved there. And I think as a teacher and as parents, like that can be important, right? You are teaching them how to follow directions and have a certain outcome. But when you are um, working with process art, it's you're really offering an invitation for your child to make and create um, from within. Um, and again, it takes time and practice. So, you know, if you are someone who just offers up, and I mean, honestly, it can literally be as simple as chalk in the driveway, but chalk in the driveway, the first time you put it out, you know, they might trace themselves or make a few lines and be done or eat it but, or eat it or throw <laughs> it or, you know, any of those things. Um, but over time, when they keep practicing with chalk in the driveway, eventually chalk in the driveway turns into a big mural. Eventually chalk in the driveway turns into maybe a game that they thought of. Maybe it then eventually, like, I mean, I know a lot of people, if you follow me in the summer um, on Instagram, all my stories are about the kids like shaving chalk and pounding chalk with mallets. And I mean, I love chalk, but I think that's why that <laughs> popped out. But um, because there's so many things you can do with it. Um, but it really is just about 
practicing. Mm -hmm. It just is. Yeah. And I think one of the problems maybe is with like the Instagram and the Pinterest, like perfection, we're seeing crafts, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing projects, we're seeing crafts. And so then when you put out materials for kids and they don't create that craft, exactly, exactly. I was actually, when I was doing um, my practicum for my master's, I was in a uh, school that didn't align with my value system as a teacher intentionally. I was like, Ooh, I, I want to get this different perspective of what this is. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was the only one in the school who had a degree in early ed. It was just like a very different setup than I had been immersed in before. And it was an awesome perspective for me because I was doing this project with kids and I had just set out, it was like winter time and I had set out different like shaped circles and, um, pieces of paper and they, and glue and tape and whatever, and they could kind of do what they wanted. My director wanted them to make snowmen and I didn't care what they made with them. And so we had been like, I had read a book about snowmen in circle time and we've been talking about them, whatever we've been making them in the playground. And most of the kids didn't make one with their circles and their whatever. And she came in and she was like, Oh no, I want you to like have them put them here. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not here to do a craft. Like this is an art project and for them to explore with these materials, et cetera. And had to like really navigate this with her. But over time, what we ended up, I put out the same materials every day for a few weeks. And over time, as we continued to like talk about snowmen and whatever, they ended up making elaborate snowmen with all these different and bringing in different materials and asking for pipe cleaners and all this stuff that I hadn't even originally put out. But the first probably at least week, not one person made a snowman, right? And part Such of it was- a good example. It was, but it was me accepting, like, it, we talk a lot about expectations in this village. And my, if my expectation had been, I'm going to put this out here, I'm going to model how I want them to do it, et cetera. Uh, I would have been missing the boat and I would have been disappointed at the end when they weren't doing it. Mm-hmm. Or when I'm then hand over hand making them create this thing. And, and for what? Or when they do it and it does look how it's supposed to look, but what did they really get out of that? Yeah. Or then they like do it for me and then they leave the table. Right. So, and I think when we're talking about independent play, a huge part of this is A, adjusting those expectations and B, knowing that when we adjust those expectations and we let let them get creative and create, uh, they are more likely to play for longer periods of time Mm -hmm. independently rather Mm -hmm. than like, fine, I'll create this snowman for you and then I'll go back to doing what I want to (laughs) do. Well, that's exactly it. I think you like hit the nail on the head there. Like when they have a chance to master the material and work with the material over and over, they can then use that as a tool for their own play and learning. But when they don't, and someone just gives them like some things and is like, oh, this is what we're making. It's not really about them anymore. And like, we know like people, not even children, people in general learn when it comes from like a meaningful place. Um, and, and so I think what, like that what example that you just used is, is spot on. Um, thanks. I, I got one question from a parent about like boundaries in independent mm-hmm. play. And I think it's something that's necessary to talk about. Because I had someone who reached out yeah. and like sent me a video of like markers on a fridge and was right. like, what do I do now? Right. <laughs> so chat about that. With well, me I think bit. that again, like it can be misconstrued when we say like, we're doing this open-ended and our children are creating. But on the other side of that is I set really, really firm limits and I have expectations. Um, 
And when you compare that with like how old your child is or like where they are in their development, those two things together, nine times out of 10, and you practice a lot, nine times out of 10, um, you won't end up in that. But to break that down, I would say like, if I was putting out, you know, I have a blog post about how to make this really simple rainbow rice. Um, but I would not encourage people to like make the rainbow rice and put it on a big bin on the table and like invite everyone to come play because that is like an invitation for disaster. If your children don't already know how to like work within sensory bins and like if you haven't set up like limits and your environment isn't set up for it, right? So I would say like in that case, like I would do that outside on a tarp for many, many days and weeks until you start to like really work through like, hmm, when you're throwing all the rice out, now it's hard to put it back in. You don't have any anymore. Um, you know, all of those things without judgment, but just as a learning piece, or if you don't, and I get it, like that takes a really long time. And a lot of people don't have the patience or time for that. But in that case, I would put out a really small amount in a bowl inside of a bin with a scoop, <laughs> you know, and one child and let that child alone work for many days before you start to add in more children and more rice and more materials. Um, because again, I think it's really about just like practicing with the material, figuring out how it works best for you. And when I say you, I mean like for the parent or the teacher who is offering the experience, I think our confidence with the material, our, um, ability to like set limits that are meaningful to us are key it, to the experience. Um, if you're not comfortable putting out paint yet with your kids, you shouldn't do it. And I don't think people should feel like pressured to be like, oh, my three-year-old doesn't use paint. Like if you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. It's so okay for them to just use crayons or like yeah. use chalk or, you, you know, like just as long as they are creating within like what works in your family, in your space. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns, and it came in the mail, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their luxe women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. 
The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Yeah, I think that's huge. And again, back to expectations, right? Like if I had a co-teacher once who, when we were, we would have like our teaching team meeting and she, we were talking about, um, opening up a water table and it was going to be the first time we were bringing this water table into we had young toddlers and uh we were like okay figuring out the time of day that we were going to bring the water table out and really introduce them to this and had to really structure it around when can one of us be at the water table because i'm not going to set it out and walk away ultimately what will happen is they will inevitably dump water outside of the table and I'm going to be running back and forth between what I'm trying to do and what they're exploring with uh, to say like, oh, we have to keep the water in the table, whatever. Like if I can't be there when we're introducing something new, it's not the time to introduce something new. I love that you brought that up. And judgment-free zone, like if you never right. bring out a water table, fine. Your kid's going to be fine. Right, like right? they're totally fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we talk a lot about the sensory systems and sensory regulation. And I think it can often in education, when we're talking about sensory, we're talking about sensory play. And this is like a sensory bin with some sort of materials. Um, and if you've been in this village for a hot minute, you know that there are eight sensory systems and tactile sensory is one of them, right? So if there, there's this focus on like, oh, sensory play. Your kid's getting sensory interaction all the time. So if yes. it is stressful for like you. You can take a walk outside in the leaves and kick the leaves in the air and smell the leaves and feel the air. And that is a really valuable sensible, sensory experience. Totally. Or putting and on I, a I pair do, of pants. <laughs> yes. Like I know I said this before and I just feel like there's so much pressure on families I mean, I'm so glad that this kind of play is getting out in the mainstream. Don't get me wrong on that. Um, but I also just feel like it doesn't need to be complicated. It's about like tweaking your mindset. Um, it doesn't need to be fancy. You don't need to buy anything special and you don't need to be crafty. Like yeah, people laugh all the time. So I'm like, oh no, I'm not, I can barely wrap Christmas presents. <laughs> I'm like horrendous at that stuff. I'm not crafty. I am very creative. Um, but I'm not necessarily crafty. Yeah. And that's the difference. Uh, exactly. And I, it's that craft project versus art and process, right? Yeah. Like letting that freedom happen. It's really exploring with materials. Um, so 
what do you do then? How do you start this? If you have a person on my team was like, what about my four-year-old? Who's like, Hey mom, mom, come look at what I made mom. And she's like, I set up the invitation to play so that I could cook dinner. But it's true. I do that too. Like, I feel like at the root of it, I feel like I really taught my kids how to be independent because I know my, my own personal limits. And like, if I don't get downtime and like space away from them, even when they were very small, like nothing's good for anyone. Like I'm totally. not, cheers to you and no one's having fun. So like, um, but yeah, it's true. So it's a, so I have, again, like I have a post on the blog and it's called like how to talk to your children about art. And it really explores like how to use reflective speaking techniques to really help them value their work. It's again, it takes practice and time for you because it, you're, we are so ingrained to keep coming over and looking and being like, that's beautiful. Uh, you know, but then we keep reinforcing their need to come show us something. Um, so I think, so again, there's this post on the blog, but it's really about reflecting back to them, um, their work, and just keeping on putting their mindset back into their own intrinsic self. Oh, and it's the that. same thing with play. Like eventually they become independent because, you know, I often say to them, I'm doing my work, you go do yours when that's over, like I can share with you what I was doing and you can share with me what you were doing. But right now I'm doing my work and I would really like for you to go do yours. <laughs> yeah. For the and love of everything. Because they think that's like mean or like they don't want to be like mean to their kid, but like, I don't think it's mean. I don't think it's mean to anyone. I think it's about expectations and allowing them that to learn how to be creative in their own space and in their own head. And like, you know, people will often comment because like, I can, I can pretty much take my kids anywhere and they'll find something to do and something to play with without me needing to like foster anything. And I think it's really because like in their head, it's like their brain path already works that way. Like, yeah, you fostered that. Works that way. And it's yeah. from doing it. I mean, like, look, we all, it's mainstream, right. For our kids to take soccer when they're two and they practice soccer and they practice soccer. So like eventually they know how to play the game. They're going to gain skills. It's part of like the culture of like your family that like you all spend soccer Saturdays together or, you know, whatever it is. And you're taking yeah. in the backyard. And this is the same thing. Um, I mean, for us, I think it's almost more valuable because it carries on throughout life. Like our children are going to use these skills from, well, that's not true. They will for soccer too. I don't mean that, but the skills that they're learning on like how to like reinvent the wheel for themselves, how to like communicate, how to, how to play, like, and not have someone from the outside entertaining you. Like that's going to take you through your entire life. Totally. Well, it's and like reading a book. It makes your life easier. I totally. Promise. It's like reading a book. We don't read to infants expecting them to read back to us tomorrow. We read to infants expecting them to read back to us in like six years. <laughs> right. And like, it, it is all this like skill building. It's a long-term game in early childhood and with so many crucial skills in our life, it's a long-term game. But one thing that you were just noting with the, like, if I'm cooking dinner and I've set this thing up and I'm asking them to go play, I, in creating the set method, it's five components. Only one is adult child interactions. One that we talk a lot about here is self-care. How are we taking care of ourselves so that we can show up as the best human we can be, whether it's peeing without a kid on your body or drinking enough water or taking that space yes. to cook dinner, et cetera. And so not only are you doing this, are you advocating 
for yourself so that you can show up as the parent you want to be or the teacher you want to be, et cetera. But also you're modeling that. You're modeling like, I need some space right now and it's important to take care of ourselves. Um, so just reframing that as like, you're not taking something away from them. You're really giving them something. Oh, yes. I think also too, like when you have small children, you're obviously not going to send them in the other room right? To play one, because you can't see them and you can't keep them safe, but also because like they're, they're probably not going to go. <laughs> like, so, you know, I think a lot of people like have their playrooms like in the basement or like in the attic. And they're like, why does my kid never play in the playroom? And like, they want to be near us. Okay. So yeah. I feel like I need to, when I say like, I need to be like, I'm doing my work and you do yours. Like I need my own separate mental space. And like, I want them to have their own separate mental space. It's okay if I can like see you and you can see me. So like when children, like when my kids were really small and I bet a lot of your listeners are already doing this. Like when you let your kid take out all the pots and pans when they're like a six month old or a one year old and they're like playing on the floor um, when you are cooking, like that's a great place to start, right? Because you don't need to be engaged in their play, but you're still near each other and you're still making eye contact um, and you can really start to let them be independent in that. Right. Yeah. And then the older they get like that, you, you know, it's almost like separation in nursery school, like where you want to step back a little bit, you want to step back a little bit more uh, until they're comfortable in their learning. And eventually they can take over on their own. Yeah. I love it. And we can phrase it in a way that is kind and respectful. We can say like, Oh, I can't wait to see what you're creating. I'm going to finish cooking dinner. And when I'm all done with dinner, I'm going to come check it out. Right. Absolutely. Like we can still, it's connection seeking, right? They all want to be connected to us. Yeah. Somebody reach out about a baby and she was like, my infant just wants to be held all the time. And I'm like, of course they do. <laughs> um, and it doesn't mean that they have to be held all the time. It is okay for you to say, for my mental health, I need a human not on my body right now. And to put them in the kitchen while you're cooking dinner on a play mat. And they might look up at you and ask for your attention or try to connect with you. And you can validate like, oh, you're on the ground and you have a ball. And you can talk to them about their space without going over and necessarily picking them up right away. Well, I think you, there's a really um, interesting piece here. And I've been thinking more and more about this in the work that I do. Um, so I think at any point, it's like the same thing. Like when, you know how like when your kid says like, I'm bored <laughs> and like, you want to just, you know, be like, tell them something to do. Okay. But if you wait, they're going to whine and they're going to annoy, you know, be annoyed mm -hmm. and they may like do something a little like destructive to like get you to solve the problem. But there's this space between like being bored, then there's like the messy, uncomfortable piece. But if, if you can like ride through that without doing anything, mm -hmm. you know, not, not doing anything, but like without fixing. You can hold them. space for it. Exactly. If you can hold space for that, then the other side is usually really amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same thing, even with like that infant who wants to be hold, held and you're in the kitchen cooking and they're down on the floor and like, they might be uncomfortable like for a few minutes. And I'm not saying like you want your kids to like be screaming, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I am Respond saying distress cries all the time. Them and like hold that space for them to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just thinking so much about that, like in everything, like in art, in being bored, in play. It's like, even like, I mean, I remember when Nate and Ruby, my oldest, who are 12 and nine now, um, when they were like, Ruby's almost 10. So when they were like, probably three and five, we had, we have a deck off our kitchen. And really regardless of what the weather was, because I'm very big into like weather gear and playing outside no matter what. So I will send them 
outside. I used to send them outside on the deck and I would literally close the door and be like, I can see you. And sometimes they would be like, mommy, medicine, you're so mean. And I would be like, like, you'll figure it out. You have each other. And sometimes they would sit on the step on the deck and be like, so annoyed. But if I waited, eventually they started playing. And that is when like the most productive creative play happens. Yeah, totally. It, it's like you're speaking right into our village. So in our adult child interactions, part of the set method, the first one is allowing kids to feel it's out of five phases. Um, and the very last one is problem solving. And there are four phases or phase one is allowing them to feel phase two is validating. You can say you really want to come yeah. in, you want to hang out with me, we can validate that it doesn't mean we're changing the boundary, we can validate that. And then we can give them, we can foster this in other moments as well, but giving them the coping tools to know like, if I'm feeling disappointed or frustrated, what do I do to help regulate my body so that I can solve this problem? And solving the problem doesn't necessarily mean you're coming back inside or removing the boundary or I'm picking you up, et cetera. Solving the problem might mean I've processed the disappointment that you're not picking me up or the frustration that I can't come back inside right now. And now I get to go play or navigate this or re-engage in a different way. Um, But yeah, I I love that. Those are the skills that really matter in the end game. You know, it's like that stuff is hard and it, yes, in the short term, would it be easier to just like turn on the TV? Sure. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes I do turn on the TV. Like I just, I'm like, guys, like go for it. I can't like, right. I want to watch TV too. <laughs> <laughs> also <laughs> like, it's not it. about perfection here. No, but if you, when you can, and if you can do it frequently, like do that front loading of the work, it pays you back a million trillion fold. Mm-hmm. Like, because now after school, like, or whenever it is like on the weekends, I was just having this conversation at the bus stop this morning. People were talking about what they did this weekend. I'm like, we don't make a lot of plans on the weekends. We like went to the woods for a couple hours. Then we came home and I was like, I'm taking a nap. And like Nate was like riding his bike, you know, like because they've learned that they don't need an outside person to like schedule like play date and circus time and soccer and, you know, all the things they know how to do that now. Yeah. And I think even deeper than that, they've learned how to connect with you, get your attention in a way that isn't fully extrinsic of like, you need to see this or be proud of me in what I did. Right. And I think sometimes when we are doing the like reward punishment system, and I think we often think of that only as a punishment system, um, but rewards even of like, wow, you did a really good job with this, or this is a beautiful picture. We're still focusing then on that end product and we're, we can continue to drive that like external motivation piece of our approval or us being proud of them, which then continues to drive that cycle of them needing us. It does. And I think it's also like, it can be tricky to like reframe, like, you know, your whole life as an adult, like people have told you like, that's beautiful. Or you think like, that's how you're supposed to work with kids. Um, but when you can really practice and I encourage like teacher, like staffs of teachers, like, even though it feels awkward to like practice with each other or like catch each other. Um, because like when you can start to say like, Oh, how did it feel when you were making that those things? Like they then are searching for that good feeling from within again, not the feeling of like, you know, or even if like that, look, you look so frustrated when you're making that, like, yeah, you know, and modeling the thinking of like, hmm, like 
how can I, you know, like, what can you do differently? Or do you need to, you know, what other tool will help, you know, whatever it is, but like putting that thinking back in. And I think thinking out loud as the adult that's around your child all the time and modeling like your own thinking. Um, like I do that all the time. I mean, to the point now where my 12 year old is like, mom, seriously. <laughs> but like, it just, once you get in the habit of doing it and you see the results and the benefit, it's so valuable that you like can't ever stop. Like totally. And it's huge. And it happened so young. We had a friend's three-year-old was over at our house recently and I just had a bag of blocks and I sat down and was building with these blocks and she came over and was building with us and I was building something and it crashed. And I was like, Oh, it's so frustrating. And just said out loud, like, I'm going to pause and take a couple deep breaths because yeah. I'm not ready to solve this. And I paused and I breathed and then, I, and it feels weird when you're not used to doing it. Like it takes so practice. Awkward. And, <laughs> and then I like, but I did it a couple times. And then later on, she was staying overnight with us. And later on in the day, my husband was home. We were all on the floor. We're all building together. And something we were building something together collaboratively. And something that I put up knocked down. And she was like, you can take deep breaths. You can get calm. And I was like, yes, like all in a day's work, like because I modeled it over and over and over throughout the day. And sometimes it's not that fast. (laughs) Sometimes we're modeling it for way longer, but it's so awkward to start doing and so powerful. I think so often we're looking at kids' behavior and we want to change their behavior. But what happens when you're bored? Are you pulling out a phone and scrolling? Are you, what, what are we doing mm-hmm. ourselves and what are we modeling? I think can play a huge role here. I couldn't agree more. Um, Oh, I feel like I could get nerdy with you for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about the role of stimulation and what we're setting up as invitations to play. So the difference between if a kid comes home from school and we know that a lot of our school systems right now and and teach, I hear this from teachers too, are struggling to get adequate sensory input into kids, whether it's vestibular input, enough time on a swing or on a playground or going upside down, really playing um, and, and changing the plane of their body versus sitting. So a lot of our kids are coming home from school dysregulated and needing to move their body in a way that we haven't. And if we come home from school and we want them to sit and do an activity versus like a Saturday morning where they might be really regulated and ready to sit and do an activity. Can you kind of break down different options there? It just reminded me to start is that on our front lawn, we have this thing, it's called a jungle jumper rail. And it's basically like a jumping tire, like an inner tube with like poles. And it's on our front lawn on purpose because we really wanted to like foster community like in our neighborhood and Hmm. say like everyone's welcome to jump on it. And we live in this very sweet neighborhood where the elementary school is behind us and the children cut through our driveway when they're walking home. And every day I see like middle schoolers, I see grade schoolers and like the little two-year-olds taught, they all need right after school to like hold onto those poles and just jump Sometimes like the kids just lay over the warm tire and chat like, and it's just, it's like they need to like move their body. And I love it because there's like input coming in and you can also, you know, it's just so much happening, but they always do it before they come inside. Um, And I think it just makes such a big difference. Totally. And I, first of all, I love that. I love that you put it out for everyone to use. I love the community piece of that, or even just your acceptance of like, it's fine for kids to walk through my driveway on their way through. I love it. I, yeah, I, I also same. Um, one, my 
sleep consultant has a four-year-old who like loves to go upside down, really looking for that vestibular input a lot. And it helps keep her body regulated. And so she, in her house, just put up rings, like gymnastic rings and threw a mat down and they built this themselves. Like it is not a fancy situation, built it themselves. Um, but she will. And I, it took me like taking some deep breaths, watching her do this. Cause she'll do things my body physically could yeah. not do that. She's super confident in because she's so strong and has been practicing and et cetera. And she'll go upside down and she'll turn and whatever. And the other day I was working with, um, a mom and we were chatting about her kiddo who I think similarly is looking for this input, isn't getting it at school. And so I was like, Oh, I wonder, um, she's in a Waldorf classroom. And I was like, Oh, I wonder if they have any sort of things that she can do throughout the day, even on the playground, et cetera, to really go upside down and move the plane of her head, et cetera. And she was like, oh, they're not allowed. They're not allowed to flip upside down. And I was like, what? Uh, Because there's so much fear around safety stuff now. Yeah. And, but I think that we really need to be taking this into consideration, both as teachers and as parents, when your kids are coming home, that if they haven't been allowed to get the input throughout the day that regulates their body, they're not going to be coming home in a place where they're ready to sit down and do an activity. Yes. So to your point, um, after school, I usually like to put out, and I don't do it every day, um, but I usually like to put out something really simple on our big table. I always put out a big snack um, because I know my kids are so hungry when they get home. Um, so I usually put out a big snack and I put out a big piece of paper and I very rarely during the week will do any kind of like craft project mm-hmm. because I know when they come home from school, they've been listening and following directions and sitting still in a chair um, all day long. And that is just not going to happen, right? So Mm -hmm. instead, in the afternoons, you'll find on our table, like big brush markers or paint or water in the water table or soap foam. And yes, for my older kids, yes, for my nine and 10-year-olds whose friends come over, they can't wait to stick their hands in that shaving cream. They haven't been allowed to do it. So like in so long that like, those are actually the kids who are like really in there um, and just, you know, up their arm and, you know, they're, they need it so much. Um, So yeah, it's usually like the snack and water. I feel like that's huge too, because I don't think my kids drink at school. And I know Mm. for myself, like that really affects me. Um, I'm headachy, I'm cranky um, and my body doesn't feel right. So I usually also like, they always joke, but it's true. Like I have a huge pitcher of water and I'm always like refilling their cup and like handing it to them um, because I know that they're not drinking at school. Um, Now on the days that we are going to do something that's maybe a little more elaborate, um, that would usually be on the weekend. That would usually be on the weekend, um, like when they come down in the morning or, you know, whatever it is. And again, that's only if like I'm in the mood because like if I'm not in it, it's not happening. Or like if I don't feel like settled and confident in what we're doing or like the rest of my house is messy, like I don't want my kitchen to be messy with our products. Totally. I I don't know. I feel like for me, it's really about like checking in with myself, um, with like what I'm comfortable with and then either, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to put something out, but it does. It really does mean that like the something that I put out might be like stickers and, Mm -hmm. and crayons. Yeah. And I mean, and then my kids will get involved in it and then they'll be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, and I'll see them running to the art cabinet and then they're going to, you know, and then they'll just take it in whatever direction they want, um, which is the best part that's better than if I had an idea in mind. But I just really think like it depends on us. Like, I feel terrible when people say to me like, oh, you're such a good mom. You're always 
you know, putting stuff out and like that doesn't, I mean, yes, but that's because it's what I enjoy and I want to connect with my kids in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people connect with their kids by like playing sports or like riding bikes together or like going for a walk. Like that stuff is equally as valuable. And I just don't want people to forget that in the grand scheme of things. That it really is just about like holding that space to connect in like an open-ended, unstructured way. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Yeah, somebody, I recently said the phrase, like, oh, she's such a good mom. And somebody asked me, like, what does that mean to you? Like, what makes yeah. me a good mom? And I was like, oh, thank you. Like, it called me out. And I sat there and thought about it. And I was like, you know what? What I meant was she's really good at reaching out for support when she needs it as a human. Like, she takes care of herself so well and doesn't feel like she needs to have all of the answers and all the things in a way that then adds pressure to her. Like she's open to the fact that, yeah, I don't know this thing about sensory systems, language development, whatever I need support, or I'm bringing in a nanny. I'm a stay at home parent and I'm bringing in a nanny part-time because we can afford it and it helps me feel show up well. Yeah. So I think like even that phrase, like you're a good mom, I I think we need to break down to like what I, I run a weekend called mama's getaway weekend. And it's like kind of like conference style for moms. Um, And one of the questions that I ask is, what would it look like for you to feel like a good mom? I think we say this about people all the time, but what would it look like for you? Like, what does that look like? And for people to define that for themselves, because I think if we don't, then you're constantly chasing this elusive goal. (laughs) A million percent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Y'all, I have been knee deep in planning for my favorite weekend of the whole year, and it's almost time to release all the details to you guys. We are fine tuning everything on our end, but tickets are going live for Mama's Getaway Weekend 2020 on December 2nd. You guys, that's on Monday, December 2nd. We are launching tickets for Mama's Getaway Weekend. This time it's going to be in the San Diego area. April 25th and 26th. And let me tell you guys, 
I'm so stoked. We have amazing guest speakers. I'm going to be diving into reparenting ourselves. We're going to be talking about things like anxiety and guilt and what social programming and patterns do you have from your childhood and your experiences. How do we navigate those? How do we rewrite those patterns for ourselves? We're going to dive in, of course, to these tiny humans' big emotions and talking about who your individual kiddos are and how you can build systems for them that support them in building emotional intelligence to last a lifetime. We're going to be talking about co-parenting. What do you do when you're not on the same page or you have a different approach from the other human? Or... What about just the fact that you're two different humans with different experiences and how to navigate conflict of everyday life? Lastly, we're going to create a plan for you that is custom to you and your family unit so that when you go home, you're not just like jazzed and feeling great, but you also have tangible tips to start implementing right away. I love, love hearing from our mamas who came to Mama's Getaway Weekend this year as they share about all the amazing things their kids are doing and the new tools that they've been implementing to make that all happen. I firmly believe at my core that no one has all of the answers and all the tools. And that's why we come together as a village. That's why we tap into each other for support. And I'm so freaking pumped to hang out with you in real life. Stay tuned for tickets on sale at mamasgetawayweekend.com on December 2nd. Where, when you're talking about like, oh, they run to the art cabinet or when we're looking at creating invitations to play and you talked about this with clutter earlier of like even maybe just a clean space is enough. I got a lot of questions about, and I think I see this just a lot throughout life of adding more oh, consistently, yes. right? I actually, so, so again, I just literally wrote a blog post about this. And oh, I, sweet. I, yeah, I just did like made a huge list of like the very basic materials that I keep on hand all the time. So like, I am very rarely running to the craft store. I am very rarely ordering art supplies um, from Amazon or any of those places because I really keep, I believe so much in like keeping it simple and like basic materials. Um, And so there's a list on, on the blog and it's just basically like where I have an art pantry and there's mine that they have to ask first. Mm -hmm. And then I have down low and like one of those pull out pots and pans shelves, um, an art cabinet for them that's open all the time. Now, again, that was practiced over a very long time. And there were, you know, I know people struggle because they'll be like, but my two-year-old can't use what my five-year-old uses. And yes, I get it. (laughs) Believe me. Um, and there's a lot of ways around that. Um, I'm going to talk more about that actually in, um, beginning in January when people are, all of a sudden like inundated now they've had all these presents delivered and art supplies and all the things and they don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to be doing some series on like how to organize that and how to make it work for your particular family. Yeah. Um, Can you give me an example though? What does it look like if you're setting something up for your five-year-old that your two-year-old can't interact with or your three-year-old that's dangerous for your baby? Yes. So people laugh. If you ever are on Instagram and you watch my Instagram stories, 
my little one is always up on the table working, like literally sitting on the table, um, which, and so are my other kids. And that is intentional for me. One, because I want them to have like full range of motion of like their body when they're working and they've been in chairs all day. But it's also because when my kids were little, my oldest who was, I think he just, he was five when my youngest was born and he was really into Legos. And Mm -hmm. so I had like a crawler and like a, you know, and a baby. So like, you know, the Legos. (laughs) And so I would put him, I would let him sit up high on the table with a, a big cookie tin with like, you know, like the lip. Um, and let him work till his little heart was content. And I would put one tray for like where he would spread everything out and one tray for where he worked. Um, and that was how I kept them from like getting knocked off the table. And I wasn't worried about choking, but he could still be with us. Mm -hmm. Um, because I actually had initially set it up only in his room, but then it was like lonely. He was up there by himself and he's can be very driven in that way. And so I actually didn't like it that he was like Mm. away from us. Um, So I think that like, just like getting creative about the space you have, even if you're in an apartment, like you don't need a lot of space. It's just about finding, like using a tray, climbing up on the table or, you know, my sister did this brilliant thing. Her kids are the same age as mine. And she also loves blocks. And she, instead of gating the baby in to a baby gate, she put a gate around the blocks and the Thomas the Train table that like her toddlers love. And then all the baby stuff on the outside of it. And then everyone could be together, but everyone was safe. Like, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Like, you know, that's what I was just going to say. I worked with a family and similarly they had a four-year-old and then when the baby was born, the kid was four. And so I think we so often like gate the baby in a place and the baby's like, no, I'm trying to crawl. I'm trying yeah. to learn gross I motor is where I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And instead we started gating off the four-year-old who could create and build and play and not be like pushing the baby away the entire time or getting annoyed with the baby knocking his stuff down. We right, because him. that's a very real thing also and like they're entitled to that like how annoyed would you be if like you were working on something that you valued and cared about and someone kept wrecking it totally and, and if you were like, like that's what they're supposed to exactly, do <laughs> exactly yeah it is so frustrating if you were like typing something up and somebody just came over and kept like hitting more keys yeah you're like no <laughs> yeah i love that so much so in terms of like where to keep toys or how much to put out or keep available at a time, again, from a stimulation place or just the overwhelm. What are your thoughts there? I like to liken it to basically imagine if you walk into like a giant supermarket and like the lights are bright and they're announcing a million things over and you don't have like a clear plan. You're just going to walk in and start like throwing stuff in your cart and like you're probably going to get home and like you still don't know what to make for dinner and you feel all like hungry, but angsty and like, that to me is a messy playroom. Then imagine like walking into like a gourmet grocery store where there's like so few choices and like you already in your head, like think you might know what you want to make. So like you don't get overwhelmed or distracted because you can really, the things are just placed really neatly on the shelf and there's not 12 different kinds of cereal. There's two. Um, so you can still have something that like you're in the mood for, but you're not overwhelmed by choices. Um, and to me, that's what I feel like a great playroom, especially for very young children. There are a few choices that are tailored to their development and interests. And the thing is, when you work with materials that are open-ended in the sense that like they have, they can be used many, many different ways, um, 
your child can do many, many different things with one thing. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Um, so if you were starting fresh today, if you are somebody tuning in and this is new to you and you have been conditioned to think that you need to engage your kids at all time. That was one thing. One mom was like, well, I'm working all day. And so then I I feel like, yeah, she's like, I feel like I am supposed to then engage with them. She's like, but I have to cook dinner and I have to get ready and whatever. And like life's happening. And you know what I I think is a great thing to do then is to like grab some magnetic tiles and a big cookie sheet that's magnetic also, and bring it into the kitchen where you are and there are no other overwhelming toys. I mean, that's a great invitation to play, if you will, for any age. Um, I know technically they're recommended Mm -hmm. for three and up, just saying. But to me, like a baby that can clang three magnetic tiles on the cookie sheet is a very happy baby. And they're learning so, so, so much from that. And then a 12-year-old can walk in and see a stack of magnetic tiles and a cookie sheet and build like an intricate, crazy structure. Um, So I think for like that mom who like, yes, she deserves to be near her child and sort of interacting with them, but she also deserves to have time to decompress because regardless of if you've been at work all day and of course you miss your child and you want to be with them, but like you can't really be mentally present unless you have checked in with yourself. Um, And I don't think anyone, anyone can like work all day and just come home and dive straight in and feel successful at the end of that. Yeah, no, I agree. And if we aren't actually present, kids know and they keep looking for our connection because we're not able to give it to them. And it's just a crappy whirlwind. Also, my 30-year-old husband, who's an architect, would build with magnetiles any day of the week, right? (laughs) Like still here for it. I love that magnetiles are the best. And I say magnetic tiles instead of like I love. Oh yeah, tiles, but, but brand wise, magnetic tiles in general are accessible um, mm-hmm. and at a much like now there are ones available at a much lower price point and like it's not overwhelming. I think yeah. you know like something like wooden unit blocks like we adore them. They're our favorite thing. But I'm not going to say that that's for everyone. Um, so, but I think something like magnetic tiles is like simple and accessible and like anyone can use it. Yeah. I like that a lot. So if you were starting fresh, where you break down a couple of things for me, like what would you have in your art space of like, here's simple art things I could put out. What would you have in your, these are sustainable open-ended toys or materials. Um, in that sense of like magnet blocks or, or magnet tiles, blocks, et cetera. Like what would you have there? What are those two things? If you're starting fresh and you're going to invest in something or you're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to get some new materials here. Um, where would you start? So again, I always recommend magnetic tiles because those are something that can grow from baby to like big kid. Um, so even if you are going to like front end load and like invest in more expensive ones, like they're going to pay for themselves a million times over. You're going to use them for years, as long as they don't get shoved in the back of a cluttered, messy playroom. Um, I, I'm literally like looking into my playroom right now. For us, I mean, we started investing in unit blocks when my 12-year-old turned one. Um, Will you break so down that, what a unit block is? Yeah. So a unit block is a standard unit of measurement, the wooden blocks that you see in a good early childhood classroom. And even yeah. better if you see them in a kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Yeah. Won't. <laughs> um, but that, so those are those like the blocks you would think of when you walk in a classroom, those brown wood standard unit blocks. Um, they are expensive. 
and they are hard to store. And if you are not someone who really values, you know, I don't think, I don't necessarily think I would start there because I think those are expensive. Um, and they, unless you're like really immersed in like learning how to do this play and not that I'm deterring people from buying you know, Yeah, yeah, I'm not right. I, but I appreciate um, that perspective. But I don't want people to feel like overwhelmed is my point. Um, I would also invest in some play silks. They Ooh. don't have to be expensive. In fact, you could probably make them yourself. You could even just like rip up some old sheets and call it a play silk, okay? Like if you're just starting. But I think, again, instead of buying a million dress-up costumes, and those play silks like your baby will use. And let me tell you, my big kids make some amazing costumes now because they've been working with that material for so long. Um, so I would do play silks, magnetic tiles. Um, I also, again, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term loose parts. It's a whole nother can of worms that I don't think we have time for today, but I do have a series on the blog about how to introduce loose parts um, with children. And that is free like you can do that for free which I really encourage you to do yeah um, it's a great season for it with like leaves yeah. and things outside yeah yes. um but again if I were really just starting out see it's overwhelming I think for people to think they have to start emptying their playroom and like start over mm -hmm. so instead I think what I would do is like buy the magnetic tiles and put them on the table in your kitchen like until you can truly see like yeah. the benefit of the simplicity and the open-endedness, um, you know, and then you might start to weed things out of your playroom. Totally. Once I love that when I love that you took this discussion about what should you add and went to like, what should you subtract? <laughs> yeah. No, because that's so powerful. And I think so all the time we get questions from people just came into our Facebook group the other day where someone was like, Oh, my kid's birthday is coming up. Like, what are your suggestions for like toys or things to buy them and my team all popped in in different ways and was like instead of buying them new toys you could create and it was like a basket of paper and grand like just invitation to play yeah. stuff and yeah no I think that's so powerful that we really don't need to add more it makes it so accessible too it just awesome. feels so different to walk into a space. And I'm not even saying like, I know, like my little one, and I was saying this, I think on a different podcast recently, like I, you know, we don't have commercial toys at this point in our playroom, but if your child is really interested in like Daniel Tiger and like the Daniel Tiger toys and they play productively with them, don't take them away. <laughs> like totally. No, I'm not saying you should buy like the Daniel Tiger bus and the Daniel Tiger house and like all the things because that's where you end up with all the clutter. But like if your child has the Daniel Tiger figures and she really loves Daniel Tiger, you could put out for an invitation to play like her Daniel Tiger figures and like 10 blocks on the table and see what happens. Yeah, less is more. We recently at the Mama's Getaway Weekend, my uh, sleep consultant brought her infant and we threw him on the ground and she was like, oh, I didn't even bring any toys for him. And I was like, awesome. We handed him a spatula and a Tupperware container and he happily played and explored with that for a while. I think we had this idea that we need to be engaging them with so many things. And But I think also too, with all of this, and again, I'm really glad that open-ended play is becoming a buzzword really glad. But I also think like people forget and they get swept up in the beauty of like Instagram and beautiful playrooms and think their child can only play productively or with open-ended materials if they're like really expensive. And that's yeah. not the case at yeah. all. 
Oh, I love that so much. So you're amazing and so in alignment with our approach to early childhood in general. Can you let folks know where they can follow you, what your Instagram handle is, what your website is, all that jazz, if they want to dive deeper? So my Instagram handle is at the workspace for children. Um, And that's probably the, I check in there almost every day. I post there almost every day and I share a lot in Instagram stories. Um, And my website is workspaceforchildren.com. I'm not really on Facebook. I mean, I push through to Facebook so you can find me on there, um, but it's mostly Instagram and website at this point. I love it. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, dude. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence Whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.